We are back with episode three of The Tasty Solution, a show where we use diverse coastal case studies to prove a very simple concept. That culinary tourism can save the world. There are a number of destination management challenges around the globe, like invasive species removal, biodiversity extinction, loss of cultural identity, international conflict, climate change, and really a host of other pressing issues. Fortunately, creative and steadfast leaders in coastal destinations are implementing new solutions every day, and a lot of times, they are very tasty. Come with us as we travel around the world and speak with diverse experts fusing sustainable food tourism and responsible destination management. Bringing this palette of innovative solutions to your table is the culinary tourism and destination management dream team, Jane Connolly and Erica Sears. And joining us today is Sarah Meikle, the CEO of the Wellington Culinary Events Trust and Festival Director of New Zealand's largest and tastiest culinary festival, Visa Wellington on a Plate. In this capacity, she's also Event Director of Birvana, The Road to Birvana, and Highball. Helping tell New Zealand's food story is hugely important to Sarah and she has been fortunate enough to have been invited to speak to a number of conferences around the world, sharing her thoughts and experiences on the role that food tourism plays in a country's branding and positioning. In this capacity, she is an executive member of Eat New Zealand, a collective of New Zealand chefs, producers, media, tourism, and event operators, who have all been inspired to create a national platform to promote and champion their best food, drink, and culinary tourism opportunities. Prior to this, Sarah spent six and a half years as general manager, marketing at Positively Wellington Tourism, now called Wellington New Zealand, one of the largest regional tourism organizations in New Zealand. Before working with Wellington New Zealand, Sarah spent just under 10 years with Tourism New Zealand in operations and marketing roles in London and Wellington, as well as establishing their marketing offices in Mumbai and Dubai and undertaking market foundation work in Latin America and South Africa. Sarah recently started a food destination and product consulting business called Food and Drink New Zealand, which was established to provide assistance, advice, and guidance to destinations, events, food operators, and the wider food sector on how to leverage food tourism opportunities. Sarah is also the deputy chairperson of Yachting New Zealand and a director of the Palliser Estate Wines of Martinborough. Welcome to the show, Sarah. We're so happy to have you here with us. Kia ora. Thank you very much for having me. It's fantastic to be here. That is quite the lineup of a background you have there, Sarah. You seem like a very busy person. <laughs> uh, yep, yep. The diary's quite full, I have to say. Um, not There's not much break, but at least it's fun, huh? So food is always a fun topic. <laughs> I, I have to ask for somebody that is so involved at many different levels in food, what is the latest and tastiest m- meal that you've had? Gosh. Uh, well, the very latest meal I had was um, just this past weekend. I was out at one of my favorite uh, local restaurants. I love supporting kind of the small local independent operators, um, which is a kind of, how would I describe it? It's got kind of a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern influence. It's, I wouldn't call it experimental, but it's very flavorful. Um 
And I mean, it's just super, super tasty. And I think that's the most important thing about food is you just have to enjoy it. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be really innovative, but it does have to be incredibly tasty for it to be good. So yeah, I, I kind of, I love, um, I love going out with friends. I mean, I go out a lot for work, uh, obviously. I'm sure everyone, a lot of people in the food sector do, but um, the best meals are the ones had with friends and just catching up with people. And I think, you know, our lives have changed so much. Gone are the days where we sat at home eating. Where we go now to catch up with our friends is out, and we do that at restaurants. And, yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And, you know, here in New Zealand, we're incredibly fortunate we have – I mean, we would argue some of the world's most incredible ingredients. Food tastes like it should here, so we make the most of it. Yeah, that's incredible. I love, um, I love that, and I can tell right away just from answering one question that you're very passionate about about food. And so I'm curious, how did you start working in culinary tourism? What what led you down that path? Well, funnily enough, I mean, I think like a lot of people who work in culinary tourism. They have a very long history with food, and it is one of those things that kind of you can never get away from. And um, I was born into a family of restaurateurs and hoteliers. My dad owned a restaurant when I was growing up, and I literally grew up behind the bar. And, um, you know, I was serving drinks from a young age and clearing glasses and then waiting tables and then working in the back office doing payroll and you know all the kind of back of house um, restaurant things and that kind of dipped my toe in the water I met lots of chefs that way I was kind of the babysitter to every chef in town and um, growing up and then I studied went overseas um, I've traveled obviously extensively in my career and spent a lot of time living overseas and in that time, really got to explore, you know, some of the most incredible cuisines. And most recently before moving back to New Zealand, which was quite a long time ago now, it was the early 2000s, um, I was living in the UK and, you know, it was just, there was this explosion in food over that time. And I remember when I went to the UK, people saying the food wasn't good, but by the time I came back, the food was incredible. And so I really saw the start of food TV, food shows, you know, food events, wine shows, all those things. And, and I suppose that kind of really spurred me on. And I had the opportunity when I came back to New Zealand and to a job here in Wellington to actually put that into play because I was asked as one of the kind of key goals of the role that I came into to actually, well, they said there were lots of challenges that we needed to fix, things like, you know, rebuild our website and that kind of thing. But one of the things we needed to do as a DMO was fix seasonality. And we had a real problem in August. And so fixing August isn't quite as easy as it sounds, but I sort of thought, well, how, what's the best way to do that? And I suppose for me, excuse the pun, food tourism was low-hanging fruit and I knew all of the chefs in town. <laughs> so I made a few phone calls and um, with a couple of colleagues, we started this little food festival that in the first year was, was small. It was about, I don't know, 12 events and I think 30 restaurants were involved. But it has grown and this is the 14th year of the festival this year and it's now actually the single biggest festival by participation in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's massive and about 350,000 people every year take part. So 
yeah, it's hard to believe that little old New Zealand can be, you know, can create something that big, but man, do we like eating down here. That is very impressive. I would love to know, uh, how would you define food tourism? Look, I mean, there's so many official definitions, isn't there, of what food tourism is. But to me, food tourism is simply any experience where somebody can engage with food or drink um, that kind of is, I suppose, just outside the norm of having a meal at home. So, you know, it's, it is, dare I say, going to a restaurant, maybe not necessarily around the corner, but certainly going somewhere to another town and eating out, going to a food event, really importantly, engaging with the producers of the food in a place. So going to a farmer's market, um, going to, you know, to the site of production of something, really exploring that value chain. But it really is all encompassing. And I think that's probably the challenge with a lot of um, destination marketing around food tourism is kind of defining what it is. And I know that a lot of DMOs have a challenge around that because they just kind of default to restaurants. But food tourism is so much more than that. And it really comes down to the people who make the food because they're the storytellers, right? So it's it's the it's the depth of the story behind um behind the products that are on the plate, I suppose. And but that that is so all encompassing. It can be breweries, it can be wineries, it can be distilleries, it can be peanut butter makers, it can be apiarists. There is the story is the concept of food tourism is huge. Um, it's really you know I think um, in a country like New Zealand, which is you know relatively new, um, and that sort of sounds a bit strange, but we have a relatively short history. Um, we're still building our culinary culture here. We, we haven't really, you know, we're not like Italy where you can say go and have pasta or go to Japan and have sushi or go to India and have curry. We don't have our thing yet that we're famous for, but we've got incredible ingredients. So we're working on it. I, I was just curious, when you started the festival 14 years ago, I know you had your personal contacts with some of the chefs, but was there immediate engagement from them? And they were saying, yes, this is great. We believe that this is a solution. Or was were, were they doubtful was it hard to pull in other producers kind of um, look you know of course when you start anything there's always the doubters I think if we have to we've kept to cast our mind back 14 15 years ago you know we were at the end of the GFC probably a situation we're going to find ourselves in in the not too distant future yet again um and you know times were tough restaurants were really really finding it hard and you know, they restaurants for many people are life's little luxury, and they were the kind of like the first thing to be taken off the list of things for people to spend their money on. So I suppose in some respects it was quite easy. I mean, one opportunity that I obviously explored was the fact that I knew lots of people personally, and that really helped um, having and driving those connections. And the people that I knew the best were the ones who really supported me. Um, and so, yes, in that first year, there was, you know, it was a small group, but we were, I suppose, small and perfectly formed. Um, but the uptake in year two was quite phenomenal. So we went from 30 to 80 restaurants in year two when people could see that the formula was working. Um, and that's, I suppose, for us, you know, where where the sort of uh, that early win really helped us um, achieve the success that we are achieving now. But 
you know, we're, we've definitely evolved as a festival. Um, we're very, very different now to what we were at the start. I think we know a lot more about who we are now as a, as a destination. And I think also we, we, I think the opportunity and the offering that restaurants create for the festival uh, are a lot better now at telling our story than they were originally. And that's been a really key focus for us because one of the things that you have to focus on when you run any kind of food event to keep it fresh is that kind of that, that element that keeps people coming back every single year. You just cannot deliver the same dinner every year. You have to, you know, really, really push outside people's comfort zones in many ways to encourage people to try something new. So I think that's been really where our focus has been. And also really trying to use the festival as a way to explore our identity here in New Zealand. So there's an enormous focus on not just engaging with local producers and suppliers, but really exploring what does it mean to be a New Zealander. And, and we do that as well as we can through food. And what's really exciting is seeing all the different chefs' interpretation of that. And I think that's really brought people along on the journey. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, that the maybe the first or second year you put on the event, who are you targeting to come to that event? And then how did it change 10 years later? And then now in 2022, in this pandemic type of world, who are you hoping will come to that event? I mean, arguably, we were probably not quite as fussy in the early days in terms of who we were targeting. <laughs> um, and I think that goes for, you know, most events. But argue, But I would say in those first few years, the local audience were by far and away our most important audience. We really wanted to create ambassadors of Wellingtonians and we wanted to create this audience of people who fell in love with our festival because we knew that they would be our strongest advocates to promote the festival to other people outside of Wellington. And so we did focus a lot of energy in the early years on really building that community of, of Wellington eaters and diners. Um, to really drive the message nationally and then eventually internationally. And I think that's worked very strongly. Um, and really now, if I look back, you know, to this day, our greatest advocates are still our locals, which you can understand, but they are passionate beyond belief. I mean, the number of Facebook communities that have been built around the festival um, that are about particular elements of it, we, we actually run this insane... Um, burger competition it sounds kind of crazy but uh, an enormous number of burgers are consumed hundreds of thousands and um and you know the number of communities that have developed around that that people you know are critiquing all sorts of elements of the burgers and i mean people travel here just to you know eat 10 burgers over three days it's kind of crazy but um that's definitely you know kind of evolve but I think now um I mean we do definitely segment our market and obviously we've got um we definitely have uh messaging that is particular to certain audiences um the festival is quite broad in terms of how it's designed so there's a couple of different elements to it we have kind of a restaurant dining program which involves um menus that are sort of designed to tell the Wellington food story. We've got this burger program and a cocktail program. So that'll happen through restaurants and bars. And then we have separately a festival event program, which is largely ticketed event and some pop-up events. And there's about this year, there's about 130 of those. And those events happen throughout the month of August. Um, sometimes it's restaurants, sometimes it's event companies, sometimes it's 
Oh, we've got a, a clothing, a very well-known clothing store here that puts on this incredible cocktail and perfume event that kind of um, matches cocktails and perfumes. It's incredible how they do it. And, you know, it's really this sort of exploration for people. And, and I think in those sorts of events, you know, the target audience is quite specific. Um, it's probably people who who do take a bit more of an interest in food, um, a bit like wine tasting, people who've probably got a bit more knowledge. Um, but, you know, we're not trying to exclude anybody. And I think the challenge for us has always been in the program curation is to ensure that there is something to meet everybody's requirements. And so it's not a free-for-all in terms of the program. We do curate it. So there's an application process. Um, and that really helps us define who we are catering um, our event programming to. And, and that's really helped us, I suppose, over the years, talk to specific audiences. And, you know, even just talking to a lunchtime audience is quite different to a dinnertime audience or a weekday audience versus a weekend audience. Um, and certainly, you know, we now build out those kind of long weekend propositions in particular to attract out-of-towners. So from around New Zealand, across the Tasman to Australia, and we also run a couple of really big events that attract people from much further afield. And, you know, we see people from particularly the west coast of the States and um, Southeast Asia coming to New Zealand as well. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, you know, something that we've worked really hard on to make sure that the program is attractive to different audiences. But at the same time, there is the ability to use it to kind of talk to a, a broader audience as well. It kind of hopefully answers your question, but um, there is a bit more science to it than just kind of promoting a food festival. Yeah, it's always, it's interesting. I've mentioned this um, on some of our shows that, so I work here on the Oregon coast and, you know, in a pre-COVID world when we were doing more global sales and we're focusing on international markets, we focus yeah. on New Zealand and Australia. And so yeah. that was just my way to see if you also are interested in us. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, you know, you have similar. Portland and Wellington are equally as weird. <laughs> we have similar, I think, you know, environments and then it, but we have flip seasons. And so it's interesting to see, you know, we have great weather right now. Um, this is the sunny time, but it's also great. You know, we have time to travel. So August is a great month for people to go to New Zealand um, because we have that time off sometimes. You know, here in the United States, like eating local is a big deal because it's hard. It, it can be very hard to find local ingredients. Um, and so a lot of times, like here on the coast, we use food trails to really highlight those restaurants, but also the producers and farmers and fishers that are bringing that local catch in. And what what is eating local feel like in an island country? Like, are all of your ingredients coming from New Zealand or is there a lot of imports? Um, what does the local food scene look like? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, it will come as no surprise. Um, most of um, New Zealand's kind of food reputation is based on some very old facts about there being more sheep than people, um, which actually is still true to this day. Uh, not quite the same level, but certainly in the tens of millions. Um and most people do know that New Zealand is a pretty significant food producer, even if they don't know what it is that we produce. But we are a primary food producer. Our big food exports, you know, are um, dairy products. So the full gambit, milk, cheese, all sorts. Um, obviously, New Zealand lamb, New Zealand beef, and then a huge um, seafood sector uh, and then our wine and beer sector. So we're, we're pretty much, you know, known around the world for 
uh, are significant primary products. I should also throw in there um, fruit as well. So we're a huge, obviously, kiwi fruit producer, uh, being from New Zealand, but also apples and um, a lot of other, you know, um, stone fruit, cherries, all sorts of things. So um, as a primary producer, you know, there is a lot of food available in New Zealand. Um, we have a very, very active farmer's market community right the way around the country. And um, those are the places to really engage with local food producers on a regular weekly basis. Um, obviously, the quality of the farmer's markets around New Zealand, like anywhere, they vary depending on the place. Um, and in some locations, farmer's markets are, you know, like a tourism attraction. They are absolutely driving people to visit, whereas in other locations, they are very much a locally based, local focus um, place to simply go and pick up some groceries for the week. But like all destinations, all, all countries around the world, we have an incredible appetite for trying new foods. And New Zealand as a country um, has been settled by every nationality under the sun. So our demand for international products is no different to anywhere else. And so, of course, you know, we, we want all the condiments and ingredients of every destination, which we can access as well through our, obviously our supermarket network. I think, you know, not we, whilst we are very spoiled in New Zealand, we can grow a lot of our own food. Um, there are access to farmers markets. And I would argue that there is definitely a very strong drive and demand by consumers to have access to locally produced food, whether that be at restaurants or simply through the local supermarket. There is still a very um, strong drive here in New Zealand to focus more and more on local products. And, you know, there's real cult followings of local producers um, that actually have been wildly successful. There's here in Wellington, there's a very, very, very successful peanut butter company um, that um, actually peanuts aren't currently grown in New Zealand. They are testing some uh, peanut butter, or oh, sorry, peanut growth in the very north of New Zealand. But we import peanuts from either Australia or Argentina. And the company now exports all around the world and they sell through Amazon in the US. They're called Fix and Fog. And they started in a little window uh, with a tiny peanut roaster um, here in Wellington. And you can still go to that original window and buy a piece of toast with peanut butter on it. And they make about, well, probably about a dozen different flavors. And there's still a huge drive to kind of support products like that uh, and producers like that who found a niche and they're doing this great little, well, what seems like a little thing, but actually they're now grown into quite a significant global company. Um, and so, you know, we've got this fantastic laneway here in Wellington um, called the Hannah's Laneway. And if you walk up the laneway, there's a whole lot of little local producers and suppliers and bars and restaurants that really represent this place. And we really encourage people to go and engage there because you do get a taste of what local food is like here in New Zealand. Um, but I think, you know, like everywhere, whilst we have incredible access, eating local is something that we will continually strive and encourage people to do because, um, you know, those small artisan food producers are doing amazing things and also producing incredible products. And they are the ones telling our food story. It's contemporary. It's not a traditional food story um, necessarily. I mean, New Zealand's um, indigenous people are the Māori. Um, they, uh, the Māori people, um, 
traditional a traditional food is called hangi. It's um an a it's food that's uh, cooked in an in a uh, sorry excuse me a um my, it's very early in the morning here my it's cooked in a um, earth oven very similar to an umu and um that's kind of the traditional way of cooking most people of course don't cook in an earth oven we have ovens in our homes um but certainly for special occasions and in fact just this previous weekend we've celebrated Māori New Year Matariki and um it's the first time um this year that we've celebrated it by marking it with a national public holiday and it's the first indigenous public holiday in the world and we're very proud of that in New Zealand and, and and many people celebrated both Māori and non-Māori with having a hangi over the weekend. Um, and it's been a real education for New Zealanders as a whole, not just non-New Zealanders, everybody together. So um, food is a very, very important part of learning about a culture and um, and understanding the meaning of it to you as a, you know, a citizen of a country. And um, yeah, so it's that's a real journey for people here in New Zealand who perhaps weren't born into Maori culture, and also understanding the use of native herbs and ingredients, um, things that grow in your back garden here that perhaps you don't realise are edible. So we're on an interesting journey and an exciting journey when it comes to our Maori food. I'm really, really excited because I think that's really eating the taste of New Zealand. Yeah, and I think it really builds an easy, you know, easier bridge for people to walk over and say, hey, I want to get to know this culture better, but I, I don't know how. And I think some people really hesitate to do things the right way. They're like, oh, I'm not a sociologist. Like, I don't have a degree. I don't want to do this wrong. But that ability to say, hey, I can go to this culinary event. It's open to everyone. I can taste this food that was created in an earth oven and learn more by like a hands-on experience. It's really fun and you can bring kids to. I think that is a really great way. But also just connecting through food that just, you know, it kind of pro provides you with that base to have a conversation. And I think that's really exciting. Absolutely. And when it comes to um, connecting through food, I'm curious, a lot of times I think food events can bring in new partners that are pretty unique. And um, have there been any uh, interesting partners, partnerships? I think I saw one about the Kaibosh Food Rescue, if you want to talk about that, that um, this large event has brought in. Yeah, so obviously um, large events do require lots of partners to make them happen. Um, and we're really fortunate to work with some really significant partners. So our um, um, our principal uh, partner is Visa, which is obviously a global uh, company that everybody knows who they are. They're a global uh, you know, network providing payment solutions, which is fantastic. And we've worked with them since year two, which has been really fortunate. And in fact, we're really proud of that partnership because um, it's their second longest running global partnership behind the Olympics, which is quite phenomenal when you think about a company like Visa. Um, but yeah, on a local level, we also engage with lots of partners. And the one that you mentioned, Kaibosh, is a really interesting company. So Kai is the Māori word for food. Um, and obviously Kaibosh is a bit of a play on words. Um, and um, Kaibosh are a food rescue organisation that was started here in Wellington quite a number of years ago now. And they really recognise the opportunity, particularly with restaurants, where restaurants and um, larger scale food production companies uh, had excess 
food that could be redistributed to a number of charities here around Wellington. And it's grown over the last few years from one depot in the downtown area to a number of depots in the wider region now as well. And it's really, really exciting to have a partnership with someone like that because not only is it doing good for people who are in need, but it's also providing an opportunity for restaurants in particular to connect. And that's um, obviously every country has different food and um, health safety regulations. But one of the challenges we have here in New Zealand is rescuing fresh food can be quite challenging from a food health perspective. So they have um, managed to kind of work through the necessary laws and safety requirements to ensure that they can redistribute food that's been pre-prepared for something else. So say take, I don't know, mashed potato um, and, you know, something that's not packaged and actually able to redistribute that because, you know, restaurants, unfortunately, whilst they try their very hardest not to have food waste um, for obvious reasons, um, they do sometimes have food waste. So making sure that that can be redistributed to people in need is really important. Um, and Kaibosh also now have some fantastic relationships with one of um, our, well, the, one of our big supermarket chains and making sure that they can redistribute um, fresh fruit and vegetables, breads, and other products um, that have passed their expiry date. So um, that's been a really fantastic partnership just to raise awareness of uh, what Kabosh are doing. And people have the option when they buy a ticket to the festival to also make a voluntary cash donation to Kibosh as well. So it's not just about raising awareness, but also, you know, people can actually vote with their wallets and help as well. So um, each year Kibosh run a really cool event in the festival which has historically focused on repurposing food that would have other, otherwise have been headed to the landfill and actually turning it into a fantastic dinner and working with great chefs to develop those menus. And it's been really, really cool um, to watch those evolve over the past few years um, and really educate people to, you know, think before you throw something away. Like, is that food actually bad? Could you make it into something else, eat it, you know, eat it before you throw it in the bin? Um, so yeah, it's been it's been great to have that partnership. Um, we also have a number of product partners, obviously, um, because again we're supporting local. We we work very closely with um, one of the great craft breweries here in Wellington. Um, I, I mentioned before that Wellington's a bit like Portland. We are often compared. There's a bit of a weirdness in Wellington. It's equally weird in Portland. Um, Having been to Portland, I can definitely see the similarity. And um, we have a really significant um, brewing community here in Wellington. And we work with uh, a really fantastic local brewery here called Garage Project, who they brew um, not just sort of like a cup, you know, your classics, but they brew some of the most incredible brews. Um, really, really diverse range. They launch, it feels like hundreds of beers each year. That's probably an exaggeration, but probably possibly close to 100 beers each year, definitely one a week. Um, and we're really fortunate that they've partnered with us, particularly on the burger element of our festival. And so we offer people the opportunity to match their burger to one of three Garage Project beers. And every year they actually brew three specifically for the festival. And sometimes they're so popular, they go into their regular range and sometimes they're just a one-hit wonder. Um, but one from a couple of years ago that was incredibly popular and they've since made, you know, brewed many times since is a pickle beer, um, which really, you know, dare I say, tickles people's fancy because it's um, 
It's a sour, it's delicious, tastes like pickles. And um, the artwork on the can is always fantastic as well. So it's really cool to partner with, you know, a really innovative company who's thinking differently and sort of, you know, pushing the boundaries of kind of what is regular in a particular category. Um, and, you know, we, we've tried to do that with, with lots of companies who that we engage with is kind of give them the opportunity and a platform to try things that are new because, um, you know, we, 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 want, we want to use the festival as an opportunity for them to develop products as well as sell their regular products. So um, it's, yeah, and I think, you know, increasingly so that's kind of how people are using the festival. That's amazing. I mean, it seems like you've been wildly successful from the year you started it and it just keeps growing and morphing into creating more meaningful pieces of the events, bringing in more partners. But I'd love to ask you about the the challenges. What what kind of challenges have you faced over the, the course of running the festival? Aside from this global pandemic that we've just had, yeah. <laughs> um, which was a total shocker. I mean, it was just, it is, it's just, everyone knows, but my goodness, being in the food tourism event industry during a global, global pandemic is not fun. Um, but it has definitely, um, I hate the word pivot. It's just horrible, isn't it? But it has forced people to think differently. And, you know, we, like everyone else around the world, have really had to look hard at ourselves and, you know, understand that the world is a different place on the other side. And so addressing that challenge is something that we are working on right now. And in fact, we are making some quite significant changes to our festival for 2023 onwards that will actually see our festival split into two editions rather than just be one month. So we'll run a May edition and an August edition. And that's partly due to the overwhelming success of the whole festival um, growing to a point that we kind of need to split it apart, but also spreading the risk because, you know, we've all operated in an environment for a couple of years now that you kind of feel like you're on tender hooks the whole time. And we want people to feel as if not just consumers, but most importantly, the industry, that they're not putting all their eggs in one basket. So, um, so that's, you know, been a big challenge for us to face. But I think overall, the biggest challenge that we've faced really is just coping with growth. Um, we have grown, we will, in the early days, we grew very, very quickly. And um, anyone who runs a food festival will know um, food festivals aren't cheap to run. And, you know, they operate really in an environment of market failure. And by saying that, I mean that Individually, restaurants on their own could never run a food festival of scale. They need everyone else to, working together in a arguably non-competitive way to make it work. And so you, know, you do need like an independent force to come in who can build the network and drive the connections and, and actually build the brand of the festival. Um, but but provide it as a platform in a way that still gives the restaurants and festival participants the ability to tell their own story, be individual, you know, kind of not be a sort of assimilated into this kind of oneness. And 
that's a challenge because, you know, for, for visitors and for consumers, getting their head around festivals and how they work and booking the tickets and understanding all the elements is an education. And, you know, it's kind of you're balancing between kind of trying to keep the industry happy and motivated and um, driving them forward and helping them innovate at the same time as, you know, trying to explain to consumers how this machine is working. And it's always been a real challenge. And, you know, um, you mentioned in the introduction in the last couple of years, um, I've started a separate company and we work all around the place. I mean, I get asked to speak at things, well, obviously much more virtually now than physically, but I get asked to speak a lot about food festivals, how they work, um, but also just about, you know, food tourism and kind of what, how, how people, I suppose, how to structure your destination to support food tourism, um, you know, what steps you can take. And, you know, some of those really simple underlying challenges just aren't really understood or acknowledged by um, DMOs or people trying to run food festivals. They kind of, they just go, oh, we just want what they've got. And the success in my mind to a food festival and particularly for us, is that they continually evolve, they continually change, and they continually grow with the industry. They never stay still. And that is a challenge because you have to be nimble and you have to be prepared to change and you have to be prepared to change the way you think about the way something should be delivered. And that is not for everyone. And so it does take a special kind of team of people to really understand that evolution and, and be prepared to change and um, and it creates work but for us it's been really exciting because I think that's really helped and contributed to the longevity of our festival. I'm curious too I feel like as things um, grow like as as destinations grow for tourism in general as events grow we always see more of a strain on infrastructure a need for more trash uh, transportation flow public transit what has been the role of government in supporting this event as it's gone from its first year to now bringing in I think you said like 300,000 people like government must be showing up some way right yeah so um, so uh, New Zealand's government structure is quite simple compared to a lot of other countries. Um, we don't have states in New Zealand. Uh, we just have regions and we only have, we have one government that looks after the whole country and then we have, uh, in each region, we have councils. So there's no kind of middle level um, like a lot of other countries. So if you, you know, you take Australia or the US or Canada, you've got these sort of states or provinces. We don't have that. Um, so our initial engagement was with our local council here in Wellington. Um, and to be fair, um, when I started the festival, I was working for the DMO, which was council funded. So we had the backing from them straight away um, by virtue of being through operating through the DMO. Um, but we did uh, in the second year, we actually signed an independent agreement with a different kind of events part of our council um, for funding and support, but certainly not all of it. And that's why the role of commercial sponsorship is really important. Um, and we've continued to work with them ever since. We don't have any national government support. And by national, I mean countrywide government support. Um, and by that, I mean cash funding. Um, we do, however, 
work with our national tourism agency, Tourism New Zealand, um, and um, work with them to, you know, use the festival as a way to communicate and convert the food tourism story for New Zealand, along with lots of other um, elements of our food tourism story. Um, but we've really had to focus on diversifying our income so that we aren't reliant on one single source. And again, that's something I have spent a lot of time coaching other uh, food festivals in around how you structure your funding so that you can survive. And so we have a combination of some local council funding. Uh, we have a commercial sponsorship. We have ticket sales. We have commissions from different events um, and other kind of, you know, sort of side activities so that we aren't reliant on one thing. Because I think, again, COVID's taught us one thing, do not put all your eggs in one basket. Um, money can be taken away from you as quickly as it's given to you if you are too reliant on a single source. So, um, you know, it's really important that you, yeah, have, have a diversified income stream. Um, I've done a lot of work in the last three years in particular with our National Tourism Agency um, to help them understand better the food tourism opportunity. Um, interestingly, here in New Zealand, um, Tourism New Zealand wasn't involved in any domestic marketing for tourism at all until COVID. And there was a change in the um, law at the start of COVID to enable Tourism New Zealand to play a role in marketing New Zealand to New Zealanders. And in that time, we've really seen an evolution in their messaging so that now, and in fact, I was just watching a, a television ad last night for um, promoting New Zealand to New Zealanders about winter, because it's winter here at the moment, and uh, food and drink feature in that quite strongly. That wouldn't have happened three years ago because internationally, our marketing is focused much more on our landscape, understandably absolutely beautiful country and um and food is is not really the hero it's very much about our landscape but i think they they've obviously you know understood that domestically the motivators are quite different so it's really exciting to see that investment going in by our national tourism agency because i think the opportunity to tell our food story internationally is very significant and it goes back to us being that primary producer. If you think New Zealand food tastes great when you buy it from the supermarket in London or New York, imagine what it tastes like in New Zealand. You've got me. I'm ready. <laughs> um, it's super interesting to hear you say that. I was just thinking for us during the pandemic, we, um, so my organization is the regional DMO, we only can market outside of Oregon because we're supposed to be bringing outside dollars into our state. And we were not able to do that for safety you know, reasons during the beginning of COVID. And so it's interesting to hear how New Zealand was like, I mean, that makes sense pre-COVID, you know, New Zealand's trying to bring in that international market, but that ability to change it up and say, okay, can't do that right now. It's not safe to bring people into our borders. Let's look inward and probably continue to create ambassadors around New Zealand that might not have known that food scene in, in another region that they're not used to. So that's really cool to hear that. I hadn't I hadn't heard that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, I mean, certainly there's no intention of them actually sort of reverting back to only international. They're still very much uh, supporting the domestic market. Obviously, individual regions like where you are still do their own promotion for their own regions as well. So it's kind of, you know, twice as much. 
Um, but it's been fantastic because, you know, it's really motivated Kiwis to explore their own country. You know, New Zealanders are incredible international travellers. We live on an island at the bottom of the world. Um, and so we're really, really motivated to go far and wide. And sitting on a plane to North America, which is 12 hours, or going to the United Kingdom, which is 24 hours, actually isn't much to a Kiwi. We do it pre, you know, in pre-pandemic days. I mean, I would go to Europe twice a year, probably to the States once or twice, to Asia, which is 12 hours away once or twice. You just did it. That was just what you, you know. But COVID forced us to focus inward. And um, what we worked out was that one of the key things that motivated Kiwis to go somewhere else was great restaurants, great food, great farmer's markets, you know, meeting the locals. So um, it's, yeah, it's been really, really cool to see that shift. Yeah. It certainly sounds like that you consider that to be one of the successes from the past couple of years. What are some other ways that you measure the success of this event? Or, you know, I'm sure at the end of, of every August or probably in September, you have to give a report maybe to the region or to your businesses to say, hey, this is why we put in so much effort. Um, how do you measure the success and impact? Uh, a couple of different ways. I mean, I think um, probably, you know, the biggest challenge for us in measuring impact, and again, people who run food festivals will relate to this, is not everything is ticketed. Um, it's quite hard to count every person. But um, we are very fortunate. We've got some great relationships, again, with our, our council here in Wellington, who assist us with a, uh, a piece of economic reporting to understand the spend, spend here in Wellington across the festival time. And the, we can break that data down into quite a granular level to understand the impact on things like the nighttime economy here in the region, um, who's spending demographically. Um, and that's all based on credit card data. Um, so that's fantastic for us to understand. And and based on that and also combined with our ticketing data, which obviously is very um, detailed, we see about 25% of all spend across the festival period from out-of-towners, both international and domestic. Um, so we can assume that obviously approximately that number of people are here for the festival or during the festival um, what we also see and hear anecdotally, particularly from our accommodation partners, is that they see a lot of um, business travel extended through the weekend over the period of August. So people who are here for, so Wellington is the capital of New Zealand. So for example, here, who people who are here for government work during the week, they'll then stay on for the weekend to enjoy the festival. So there's definitely a lot of, um, a lot of that. Um, but I suppose what we also try and measure through um, the work we do with the industry in particular is not just the uplift in business, which of course we want to measure, but the impact that their work is having. So how sustained are the relationships that they're developing through the festival beyond the festival? Do they continue to supply those restaurants with XYZ product? Um and we really want to understand that, like, is the supply chain or the value chain being improved because of the festival? And look, largely from certainly the feedback that we've been getting, the answer is yes, and that there are long-term um, relationships being built. But we can always improve and we continually focus on connecting local producers and suppliers to the restaurant industry here. And so one of the things that we've enabled over the last um Oh, probably decade now is um, much earlier in the planning cycle for the festival 
so this year we held it in February, we run uh, something called our Producer Marketplace, which is a local producer and supplier trade, uh, basically like a meet. And so we invite in all the restaurants from around the region, as well as all the food buyers for the supermarkets, both independent and national. Um, and we invite in as many products and suppliers as we can from the local region. And they are there to put on a food fair to meet the people that they can potentially supply. And we found that's been a really successful way of getting new products to market. Um, and it's been a great opportunity for small independent producers, particularly to engage with restaurants in the very early stages of planning to help them, for example, work with an olive oil producer because they want a particular flavor olive oil or you know, a chocolate maker and they want to include a particular, you know, flavor of chocolate or, or, or whatever. And that's been a really, really useful platform. So we continue to try and grow those things to improve the impact of the festival. So it's not just bums on seats, it's lasting business connections. And um, yeah, so it's kind of, we, I suppose we measure the impact in lots of ways as, you know, I mean, in the success, of course, we look at numbers, we look at spend, um, but I think it's important that you look deeper than just those sort of top line measures um, because that's actually where the lasting impact of the festival is and the legacy. Yeah, so so thinking about the legacy, um, what do you see in the future for not only the festival but for the food scene, for food tourism in New Zealand? What do you What do you see coming down the line? Well, it's really interesting because I think internationally, New Zealand's food scene isn't known. And so therefore, I kind of feel like the future is the world discovering what we have. And, um, you know, as I kind of mentioned earlier, food tastes like it should in New Zealand. And, you know, I think we are blessed and probably almost take for granted here in New Zealand what we have because we're used to it. But, I, you know, I've been so fortunate to travel all over the world and tomatoes taste incredible here you know and I think everything that comes off our land our sea in our sea from you know it just it everything is just so delicious and I think that's really what is on our radar we are about to tell the world or show the world what we've got and I think we're going to see a lot more people traveling to New Zealand to explore our food and explore our country through food so you know, we're going to see a lot more people um, coming to New Zealand and making their restaurant reservations before they book their tickets. The sort of thing that, you know, I do before I go to Italy or Spain, you know, because we've kind of been taught to travel like that the other way. But I think that's the, 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 the big thing for the food scene here in New Zealand. I mean, you know, it, it, New Zealand's uh, restaurant scene particularly is really exciting. I mean, what has been amazing through COVID is actually has been watching the development of some really exciting internationally or international level dining um, and some people really using the opportunity of COVID to understand who and what they are as a food offering. And I think you know, watching international visitors explore that is going to be really, really exciting. But also having New Zealanders tell their story and be their ambassador and not just take the food we've got here for granted, but realize that actually, wow, it is amazing and we should be telling everybody about it um, is going to be 
the probably the coolest thing. Um, and yeah, I'm really, really excited about kind of, you know, as we emerge from this period and I think this coming summer, so that's for us starts kind of in November, December. Um, I don't think we're going to know what's hit us actually. I think it's, it's going to be pretty impressive. And by all accounts, um, it's going to, you know, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be busy, but we're going to be busy with people who want something a little bit different to the previous visitors who came to New Zealand. They're going to be a bit more inquisitive, a bit more thoughtful, and a bit more planned and measured when it comes to the sorts of experiences they want, and that's going to include food experiences. And so the opportunity is ripe, and I suppose I'm trying to help as many businesses in New Zealand, particularly um, in the food space, get ready for that because it's coming and it's exciting. Absolutely. And um, as we start to wrap up here, you know, a big part of this show is we're really trying to show that culinary tourism can really solve a lot of destination management issues. And so as we start wrapping up, is there anything else you want to speak to on that point of how you feel like some of some of all of the work you're doing is really um, creating a lot of solutions in your region? Yeah, and I think, you know, destination management as a concept, um, and particularly the concept of regenerative tourism, is something that's really, really at the fore of um, all DMO thinking here in New Zealand now and has been a key focus during the COVID period to really realign what they are doing and how they position themselves to think about how are they being more sustainable as a destination? How are they being more regenerative as a destination? What is their impact on the whole value chain? How are they giving back to their communities? How are they involving their communities? And I think that's where food tourism really does play a key role because it's engaging growers, it's engaging small producers, it's engaging the wider community. And um, it's been, you know, really heartening to see that focus over the last few years. And I'm really excited to start seeing how we roll it out, you know, properly as international visitors really start returning to New Zealand. I mean, certainly there's lots of international visitors here now, but summer will be much busier than right now. So that's when really the rubber hits the road, as we call it. Amazing. Wow, Sarah, it sounds like, I mean, all the work that you have done, everything you have going on right now, and all that you have to look forward to the future. It's in, it's incredible. You've got a lot of, um, a lot of irons, let's say in the fire yes, right now. Like and <laughs> I don't know, maybe they're all, they're all going to strike hot, that's right? Like Doesn't sound like you're slowing down anytime no, soon. No, um, so just wrapping up, it's been a, a wonderful conversation to have you to just to see the impact of one culinary festival that's had uh, starting out at such a local regional level and now to the, the absolute massive growth it's had representing now uh, New Zealand's food scene at, a, at the national level, international level. It's, it's really, really impressive. Um, it's been great to to hear the details, and um, I'm I'm sure that we could probably keep talking for a couple I'm more sure, hours on, sure. on everything else. <laughs> so I'm not sure if you have any last words to leave our our audience. No, but just thank you for the opportunity, and I 
really hope that people take some something away from this and you know are motivated to particularly if they're in the food festival space you know keep keep going but think about what makes you special what makes you different you know what is your kind of your thing um that really sets you apart from other destinations and how do you work with you know that whole value chain because it's just so crucially important to your long-term success wonderful food for thought to finish on yeah well food tastes like it should in new zealand and uh, now we know that for sure after talking with sarah meekle thanks for joining my co-host jane Connolly and i erica sears on another episode of the tasty solution on the american shoreline podcast network <laughs>